Got your Bibles, will you open up with me? We're in the book of 1 Peter. We are in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10 is our text. A lot is going on in the month of February. We're excited. We want to grow in our walk together uh, with Jesus. Uh, one clarification on the youth event, just be aware that it's not the same park we did at Christmas time. So this is the park we meant at Christmas time, and I got the wrong address, so that's why we all showed up at the wrong park. But this is the park we're thinking of, so it's different than Christmas time, just be aware of that, and I'll mention that again next week so uh, nobody goes to the wrong park. But First Peter, chapter 2, starting in verse 4, hear God's word this morning to us. It says, as you come to him... A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up a a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For stands in the scripture, behold, I am am laying in Zion a stone, a, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and in a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a a holy nation, a a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Sometimes when we search throughout church history, we come across a, a precious life that, that, that literally makes you stand in awe. That, that is the case when we come to the life of, of John Owen. John Owen lived a, a tremendously difficult life. He had 11 children, watched every single one of those children pass away. So on average, every three years, John Owen had to watch another one of his children die. On top of that darkness, he had to watch his own wife pass away. On top of that darkness, there's, there's a shifting of the political landscape going on. King Charles and his brother James at the time were trying to wipe out the Puritans, making sure the Puritans didn't have any political say. So what was taking place is that after John Owen served 14 years as the vice counselor of Oxford University, he spent the next 23 years of his life as a kind of refugee pastor, kind of a fugitive pastor in London. Here he was, serving his body, and and yet all the political landscape taking place, and because the Puritans were kind of being persecuted at the time, John Owen watched many of his friends beheaded, many of his friends thrown into prison. John Owen himself had his his carriage surrounded at one time in which they were trying to kill his life. Somehow he escapes, 
The environment got so crazy there, they, they tried to push him to America so he would find safe refuge. But he remained in London instead. And because he remained in London, he faced daily kind of the attacks and assassination of his character. He, he faced daily the persecution that was coming his way. And you would have thought that these trials and this persecution would have pushed John Owen away from, from his faith. But in fact, it did the exact opposite. When everybody else was kind of backing away because of the persecution, John Owen made it his pursuit to cling even tighter to Jesus, to pursue holiness even more. One of his books, The Mortification of Sin, he writes this during this time. He says, I hope I may own in sincerity that my heart's desire unto God and chief design of my life, its twofold purpose, is the mortification and the universal holiness may be promoted in my own life, in the hearts and the ways of others, to the glory of God, so that the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ may be adorned in all things. Is that not incredible? For a man who suffered so much to say these words. In so many ways, John Owen's life it embodies the book of 1 Peter. Here was a man who was in exile. Here was a man who was persecuted. But he made it his life's mission to cling to Jesus in everything he did. And instead of backing away from biblical obedience, no, he pursued holiness even more. He was a man in who in many ways began to kind of sum up this passage for us this morning. What was the result of his life as he pursued holiness? It's found in verse 9. John Owen made it his mission to declare the excellencies of him who called him out of darkness and into wonderful light. What's so amazing about John Owen's life, though, is that these trials, they didn't push him away from his mission. But they actually became the flame to ignite his purpose and mission even more. The more trials that came into John Owen's life, it was almost as God was saying, here's, here's more opportunity for you to explain the excellencies of the one who brought you out of darkness into marvelous light. And as I think of his life, I cannot help but think here was a man who, who had to drink heavily from the book of 1 Peter. This book is so full of hope and encouragement. Specifically during our times of darkness, those seasons of life that are difficult and hard, this is the book that we want to rest in. Because it is a book of living hope. And our passage this morning is no different. And it begins right off the bat in verse 4. Look at what it says in verse 4. Will you read it with me again? He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. But also the hardships of facing persecution from the outside. Now notice what Peter is instantly saying in this moment. He's, he's reminding his church that they're not alone in their trial. That they're not alone in their rejection by men, but, but Jesus was actually rejected before them. And what he's saying in this moment, he's saying because Jesus was rejected just like men, he is able to sympathize with you in your weakness more than you can comprehend. What a wonderful thought. 
To know that Jesus knows your pain. He, he understands your pain. He has felt that pain because he walked with it before. That's what makes Christianity unique. The reality that God was a God who did not just stay up in heaven, but he came down to this earth and he, and he walked this earth. And because he walked this earth, there's, there's never a moment we can turn to Christ in our crisis or our trial and say, God, you don't understand. No, Jesus understands. Because he walked it himself. Struggling with, with temptation. Jesus understands because he was tempted by Satan himself. Have somebody in your life that stabbed you in the back, a close loved one. Jesus understands because Jesus, Judas stabbed him in the back. Having family conflict in your house. Jesus understands it. His own family thought he was crazy. There's nothing in this life that you can walk through in which Jesus doesn't understand because he walked through it himself. It's a, it's a marvelous thought and he starts right off the bat, and he needs this church to understand they are not struggling on their own, but their Savior is one who was rejected by man as well. But it keeps getting better. Notice what he says right after the fact that here Jesus is, he's rejected by man, but what does he say, what does he say next about Jesus? That he was chosen and precious. And in other words, what he's saying, he says, here, here he is in one sense rejected by men, but on the other sense, he is one who is chosen and precious. And we need to take those two, two realities and, and see them close together because I think it helps us in our own trials as well. Jesus lived a, a horrible life of suffering and pain, one who didn't have a home, one who was rejected by his own people, one who eventually dies on the cross, but yet at the same time, Chosen, precious, valuable, esteemed in God's sight. And again, I think many of us need to take that to heart. Because maybe you've gone through a trial, a great tragedy in your life, and you've allowed that tragedy to create separation between you and your walk with God. Because you've concluded that because God has allowed this tragedy to happen in your life, He must not love you. Because if He loved you, He would have taken it away. And Peter in this moment is saying, just look to Jesus. You see one who suffered, but at the same time you see a God who, is, who, who loves him and chose him, esteemed him, evaluated him. And what he's saying, Peter in this moment, he's saying, he's, he's saying these trials never negate the love of our God. And in the midst of your trial, you still serve a God who loves you. In fact, I think this is why this reality of Jesus suffering and, and understanding and, and is able to, to, to sympathize with us in our weakness becomes so profound. Because there are going to be moments of our life in which we're walking and we're in this question. We say, God, have you abandoned us? But yet here Jesus is, he, he understands that. What did he say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the great news of the gospel is because Jesus was actually forsaken himself, it gives us the promise that we will never be forsaken by our God. That yes, Jesus was forsaken, and because of that, we have the assurance that God will always be by our side. 
Peter needs us to see, to, to reframe how you and I begin to look at trials. And he's been trying to get us to see them differently. This entire book. says trials never negate the love of God. And now what he's saying this morning is trials never negate the purpose of God in our lives. But actually these trials are going to flourish, become the flame that ignites God's purpose for our lives. Notice what he says specifically in this passage as he's trying to make us see trials differently. He begins with our identity, and he there in verse 5, he begins to explain it to us. Peter writes in verse 5, he says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then he repeats himself, verse 9, just repeating his identity again, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. Now notice again how, how familiar this language is to the Old Testament. It built you into a spiritual house, temple. You're going to be this royal priesthood, a chosen nation. It's all words. They're all used of Israel. And the temple, the old Solomon temple, and here are words that, that, are, that are of the Old Testament. And, and what, what Peter has been trying to do this entire book is he's trying to, to get us to see the similarities between us and the nation of Israel in their time of exile. In essence, he's saying, hey, you again, you have, you're not alone in your pain. You are not the first people who have been dispersed in exile. But there's somebody who went before you, just like them, nation of Israel, and what were they looking forward to for their rescue? It was the Messiah. And here we are in our exile, and what are we looking forward to? The second coming of Christ. He needs us to see these similarities, but yet he also needs us to see the differences. What are those differences? It begins with this idea of him beginning to call us this living stones who are being built together to make this spiritual house. In essence, what he's saying is your identity has shifted. Now is the church. Remember, the temple was vastly important for the people of Israel. In many ways, their identity is tied to the temple. It's where they were beginning to hear from their God. It's a place in which they were beginning to make sacrifices unto their God. It was a place in which God dwelt himself so in many senses, this, this, the, the, the temple serves as this corporate identity for the whole nation of Israel. But now Peter says, that's changed. Our identity as the church is no longer a building, it's no longer the temple. How do we know that? Because we become the temple. We now are the living stones being built together to make this spiritual house. He's saying what now unites you is not the temple, but what unites you is this chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ himself. So that when we gather as a family, our identity is found in the reality that we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. He's the one who unites us. And when we come together, our identity is found in us serving the same mission together and walking together. That's when the world begins to see the beauty of the church. In fact, notice that when they begin to look at Solomon's temple in all its splendor, it was a beautiful building. The beauty did not come from one individual stone by itself. 
But the beauty of the old temple was when these stones were built together and you begin to see them united. And as you looked at these stones united together, that's where the splendor came. In the same sense, it's true of the church. The beauty of the church is not us doing the solo walk on our own. It's not us by ourselves on a Sunday morning watching the, watching the online kind of stream. The, the beauty of the church comes together. When we as these living stones are united together on mission, walking together on mission, united by Jesus Christ being our chief cornerstone, that's when the world looks in and they begins to see this new creation that, that Christ has created between his church. What great news. What great news for a church that was dispersed. A church that in their lifetime was going to see the destruction of the, of the temple in Jerusalem. You need to say, hey, your identity is not in that building. It's not in Jerusalem anymore, but your identity is now found in the reality that Jesus is the one who unites you. Imagine how profound that truth would be to this church. See, we do ourselves a disservice when we strip these passages away from their historical context. We do ourselves a disservice when we strip it away from its emotional context. Peter is writing a certain group of people who are struggling, and these words were used to give them hope in the midst of their trial and their struggle. And when we begin to see that reality, these lives, these words become... To, to, to these words come to life for us. But now he begins to say, and he's, he's redefining where our corporate identity comes from, and it's coming through Christ. And he's saying this is the beauty when you are joined together, on mission together, on purpose together. But what is the purpose of the church? Well, thankfully, our text very clearly tells us in our passage you begin to see our purpose as you just simply read verse 5 and put verse 9 together. There's our purpose. We are a group of living stones, individuals coming together to build this spiritual house called the church. We are a group of, of holy priesthood coming together to, to offer our bodies as now this living sacrifice. Why do we do this? So that we can proclaim the excellencies of the one who has brought us out of darkness into marvelous light. That that is our mission and our purpose. You see it right there from the text, verses 5 and 9. We are a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, offer spiritual sacrifices with our lives so that Christ's excellencies can be proclaimed to the world. I'll give us a little clear definition, but that's the beginning and it's right there in the text. We begin to see it, and we begin to see it even more as we begin to kind of unfold. What do these words actually mean? What does it mean for the church to be this holy priesthood? Well, I think the first century writers are going to be in shock in those words. Right? Because the only way somebody could be a part of the priesthood in the Old Testament is being born in the tribe of Levi. You couldn't, by your own choice, just walk into the priesthood. No, you had to be born in the line of Aaron, of the tribe of Levi, and you were, in essence, catch it, you were chosen by God as you were born into the tribe. Those words are going to be important. Because we are chosen. And what he's saying, and, and as they're reading, they're thinking, how do we become this holy priesthood if we haven't been chosen to be of the line? But it shouldn't have been that confusing 
Because what Peter is doing here in verses 5 and 9, he's simply quoting from, from Exodus chapter 19. And catch the words from Exodus 19. Verses 5 and 6, Exodus 19, it says this, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. Did you see what he's saying there? That God foretold the time in which that he would de develop his people into being this holy priesthood. In essence, Exodus 19 is fulfilled in this church age through the body of Christ, the church. We are the ones that now become this holy priesthood. And what does it mean for us to be this holy priesthood? Well, remember, these, the, the Jewish priests served as a type of a, a mediator between God and, and, and their people. They're the ones that, who, who begin to, to hear the instruction from the Lord and they begin to translate it to the people. They were the ones who would begin to unfold the covenant kind of obligations. They served as this mediator between God and, and God's children. And they begin to make sacrifices. In essence, they stood in their place and they said, we're going to make a, a sacrifice on behalf of the nation. We're going to take a sacrifice of a goat and a bull and we're going to say, this, these are for the sins of the nation. They serve as a mediator as they're, catch it, mediating the grace of God to the people. That's our purpose. To be mediators of the grace of God to the world. But the way that we become this holy priesthood Mediators of the grace of God to the world of God is not by making sacrifices on behalf of them, but the way we serve this purpose is by pointing them to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. So our purpose as a church is to proclaim the gospel message. And as we proclaim the gospel message, we become this royal priesthood that is mediating the grace of God to the rest of the world. In essence, what he's saying is the purpose of the church comes down to verse 9. That we are called to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has taken us out of darkness and moved us into marvelous light. That is the church's purpose. And, and, and just rest in that for a second. What does that mean? What, what is our church purpose? How, how does our mission statement as Faithful Bible Church line in with the Scriptures? What is our mission statement as a church? We are a church dedicated to proclaim Christ's glory to the nations. We are a church dedicated to proclaim Christ's glory to the nations. Is that not the same thing we see in verse 9? To proclaim the excellencies, his glory, from the one who has brought us out of darkness into marvelous light? That, that's our purpose. That's what we were born, set apart to do. We've been chosen, set apart for the very purpose to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has taken us out of darkness and moved us into marvelous light. But catch it, here was a church that was dispersed. They were in different regions. And what is Peter saying in this moment? He's saying this trial doesn't stop you from pursuing God's purpose on your life. 
No, in fact, it's the exact opposite. This trial now becomes the flame to ignite God's purposes in your life. If your purpose is to explain the excellencies of the one who has taken you out of darkness and moved you into marvelous light, guess what? This exile actually helps you with that purpose. You've seen what he's saying to this church? He's transforming this word exile. That you've been chosen, you've been set apart for a purpose. And this exile is not a bad thing. Yes, Satan wanted to use it for your destruction. But this exile is actually serving to flame your purpose. Now you get to proclaim his excellencies to even more people and to the rest of the world. Peter, this entire book, is trying to transform the church's way of looking at trials and tribulation. He began by telling us it doesn't negate that the God's, the God's love for us in our life because we are chosen people. And he coupled this word chosen, elect, with the idea there of, of being exiles together. Meaning that he begins to flip this word exiles and now he's saying this word exiles is actually used for your good. It's the flame that ignites God's purposes. You have been dispersed for a purpose. Yes, Satan wanted to use it for your destruction. God is using it for your good so that you can proclaim his word to even more people. Trials doesn't take away from your purpose in this life. No, trials actually begin to be used by God to serve his purposes even more. And because this is such a repeated theme, we need to see this picture in real life. The year was 2015. California rough fire was coming in. Familiar with the California rough fire, it burned 150,000 acres. It's time of day, 55 days in, it's coming right at Hume Lake Christian camps. The fire is about to overwhelm this camp. Time, man, I'm struggling. Why would God allow this to happen to such great people? Hume Lake is a camp that that's led over one million students to Jesus Christ. It's a camp who's, who's made it their very purpose to proclaim the gospel to teenagers. They're Christ-centered in, in everything they do. So why would God allow this fire to wipe out this camp? Let me tell you, this fire was messing me up. One of the reasons it was messing me up, my own son was in the hospital. I'm looking at this fire and it's symbolic for my own life. I remember walk, driving home from a mission trip, screaming at the top of my lungs, why God would you ever allow this to take place? Serving in your purposes. I'm serving your people. And you have the audacity to take my son, put him in the hospital? It's life's in jeopardy? Why would you ever allow this to happen? I'm taking my anger out on this fire. It's symbolic for my life. And I'm thinking, God, what are you doing in this world? I was angry. Until... 
president of Hume Lane Christian Camps comes on. He begins to say the essence of 1 Peter. That our identity is not found in our land. It's not found in our facilities. But our identity as a camp is found in the mission of Hume Lake Christian Camps, and that is to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the world. And guess what? This fire began to be the flames that ignited that mission far beyond what Hume Lake Christian Camps could do on their own. Because as this fire was going to take over this camp, this prayer request began to go out. They began to to say you need to pray for this camp and as these prayers go out it begins to go viral people in australia begin to pray people in, in in all the way in new york people in florida people in virginia people begin to pray across the globe and every time as this beginning to go viral guess what the news begins to pick up this story nathan brown my my old mentor, the president of, Christian, of Hume Lake Christian Camps, he comes on these newscasts, and in these newscasts that is being broadcast across the globe, guess what he's saying? He's telling the people the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fire became the flame that ignited their purpose far beyond what they could ever imagine. Not to mention all the firefighters who are coming, guess where they're staying as they're fighting this fire, they're staying at Hume Lake Christian Camps. They come together, the gospel is proclaimed in the morning as they begin to eat their breakfast at, at night and, and firefighters are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And I've been sitting there, God is whispering to me. I am a God who works in the trials. You might not understand it, but I am a God who is in control of the trials and yes, Satan is trying to use these trials to destroy you. But I am simply using these trials to stir the flame, to ignite these purposes even farther than what you can imagine. And friends, you, you need to see that. When trials come to your way, it's, it's not taking away God's love, it's not taking away his purposes, it simply becomes the flame that ignites it even more. More opportunity to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has saved us from darkness and moved us into marvelous light. This is what Peter is trying to tell his people in the midst of their struggle and their pain. You serve a God who is alive and who will never, will never allow that trial to have the last word. Again, they're persecuted, so what does he do in the middle of this text? He begins to give them encouragement. He quotes them Isaiah 28, he quotes them Psalm 118, and then he quotes to them Psalm uh, eight, uh, 8 at the end there. And what, are these, what, what is he saying in the essence? When we see the context of, of Isaiah 28, it begins to make sense to us. He's saying three things in, as he's quoting these Old Testament passages. Context of Isaiah 28. Was Isaiah trying to tell his people that destruction's coming to Jerusalem? Guess what the people were doing at the time? The kings were mocking them. Saying Jerusalem will never be destroyed. The temple? Why would God ever allow his dwelling place to be destroyed? So they were mocking Isaiah. They didn't believe it. They didn't listen to Jeremiah. They didn't listen to Ezekiel. In essence, what he's saying 
to their people, to, to these people who are in exile, as he's saying, there's going to always be people who don't believe in Jesus Christ who are going to mock you. He's saying persecution is going to be the norm. This is what he's trying to get across, and he quotes, again, he's quoting these, these passages. In essence, he's just saying, yes, persecution is going to come. Psalm 118 The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Isaiah chapter 8, a stumbling and a rock of offense. Stumbling block to the Jews and offense to the Greeks. Persecution is always going to come, but what does he say at the end? He's saying, but where are you going to find your safety in the midst of the persecution? Isaiah 28 says, Behold, I'm laying a Zion, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Saying Jesus is that chief cornerstone. So so when your world feels like it's shaking. And your world feels like it's being flipped upside down. Where are you going to land? He says cling to the thing that is immovable. don't, Don't back away from your obedience in the trials. No, pursue holiness and cling to the only thing that is immovable, and that is Jesus Christ. See what he's telling his people? In essence, what Peter is simply doing is repeating his own life story. Remember John chapter 6? The people have disappeared from Jesus. The disciples, are, many of them are walking away, and Jesus turns to Peter in this moment. He says, are you going to go with them? Peter says, I'm not going to leave. Where else am I going to go? Your words are life, Jesus. Where else am I going to go? You're the only sure thing in this world. We need to remember that. Because sometimes our lives will feel like it's being turned upside down. And where are we going to turn? The only thing that is steady. See, there's no other worldview that makes sense of trials and tragedy. No other religion that can make sense of the things that are happening in this world. Only Christianity. And it's seen through the cross. That if the greatest tragedy of this world, Jesus Christ dying upon the cross, if Jesus can take the greatest tragedy and flip it around to be mankind's greatest blessing, salvation for the, for the ends of the world, he can take your tragedy And transform it for his good and his purposes. Peter needs his church to see. That no matter what happens in your life. Never negates God's love. And never negates his purposes. But actually he uses trials to stir the flame to ignite his purposes even more. Every trial that comes your way. One more opportunity to proclaim to an unbelieving world. The excellencies of the one who has taken you out of darkness and moved you to marvelous light. Friends, you have been chosen, set apart for this very purpose, to showcase the excellencies, Christ's glory. You have been chosen for this very purpose, to sing the words that are found in this next song, that he is worthy of it all.
worthy of it all in the hospital, worthy of it all in the cancer, worthy of it all in the divorce, worthy of it all no matter what takes place in your life. He is still worthy because he is God. And he's using every tragedy to further his purposes. You might not see it, but one day we will be able to say, Serve a God who's sovereign over it all, who's making his masterpiece take place throughout history. Do you believe it? Well, then let's sing it together. Will you stand as I close in prayer and the band comes to sing? Oh God, I'm so thankful for your text. God, I proclaim that you are that solid rock and I will stand on nothing else because everything else is sinking sand. God, I'm thankful that you have disclosed yourself throughout the scriptures. I'm thankful for the great news of the gospel that you loved us so dearly to send your son to die in our place and for our sins. I'm so thankful for the promises that you are a God who uses, uses every single trial that comes in our life for your good and your purposes and your glory. Let your church see that. Let us proclaim it with our words as we sing. You are worthy, worthy of it all. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.